All right, so we're back in 1 John 4 this morning. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles, open up your Bible app to 1 John 4, whatever device, whatever means you're using this morning. So last week we talked about fear. And uh, remember Steve had us all at one time say what we were afraid of. Remember that last week? Well, I mentioned sharks, okay, front row. More specifically, getting eaten alive by sharks. Okay, that would be not just sharks like in a tank, but being eaten by a shark. I don't know about you, but that's a bad way to go out. I don't know what you said, okay? That's my fear, okay? Um, but regardless of all that, last week we looked at our natural tendency that we all have to fear and how God's love casts that fear out. So here's the passage we looked at last week, 1 John four seventeen to 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so John just doesn't mention fear in general here. And it was fun to kind of say what we're all afraid of, but there's a very specific fear that John talks about here in verses 17 and 18. And it's fear of God's wrath, more specifically fear of God's wrath on judgment day which is very real and is really coming. And we need to see that. We need to hear that. And the urgency of that needs to sink in. God's wrath is very real. And the day of judgment is very real. And it's coming. And John tells us in 17 and 18 that the love that God has shown to us and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is powerful enough to rescue us from that wrath to rescue us from that day and to cast any fear that we might have in our hearts concerning his wrath or concerning that judgment clear out of our hearts. Remember Steve did the the saloon doors, out goes fear. God's love comes in, casts out fear, specific fear about God's wrath, specific fear about judgment day. And not just cast out fear, but John tells us in verse 17 that it gives us confidence for that day. That we don't have to be afraid of that day, but we can have confidence on that day. And the reason for that is, is because Christ's death was the propitiation for our sins. And we've looked at that word propitiation in 1 John, meaning this, his death satisfied the wrath of God in our place. It satisfied God's burning, righteous, very real anger towards sin. Christ's death satisfied that wrath in our place. So much so that Romans 8 says that there is no condemnation. Hear this church. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And now John is telling us the same in chapter 4. And what I gather from this is this, and here's what I want you to see, just as a bit of review from last week. God does not, does not want you to live in fear. And unfortunately so, sometimes church and religion and preachers and friends can really kind of produce this kind of fear in us, can really kind of instill a fear so that we want to live by fear in our relationship with God. But God doesn't want us to live in fear of him or fear of his wrath. He wants confidence, confidence in his love for us in Christ to be the dominant thought and motivation in our lives. And so if you've come here this morning and you're a religious person and you find that you're worshiping God and obeying him and living in this world and it's based completely on fear, I want to introduce you to Jesus. 
who gets rid of fear, who satisfies the wrath of God so that you can live and walk in the confidence of his grace. And that's what John did for us last week. So that was last week. Perfect love casts out fear. This week, we're going to look at a very unique characteristic of God's love and also the positive effects of what love has in our lives. Last week was the negative effects. It casts fear out. This week is the positive effects, what it produces in the lives of those who have tasted it. So follow with me in 1 John four nineteen to 21. John says this, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let's focus our attention here first on verse 19. Okay? We love because he first loved us. Let's talk about God's initiating love. God's initiating love. Here John tells us a very remarkable characteristic of God's love. And we've talked about God's love a ton in 1 John. A ton. We haven't focused in on this aspect of it just yet. Very remarkable characteristic of God's love is that God's love initiates. It takes the first step. John emphatically says here, we love, and the only reason is so that we love is because he first loved us. Now, some of you are noticing that verse 19 sounds a little bit different than maybe how you grew up hearing that, right? It's a little bit different than what you've heard in the past. A number of translations that we have today and even historic translations have translated verse 19 like this. We love him because he first loved us. All right, maybe some of you have a Bible here this morning that says that. We love him because he first loved us. And while that is no doubt true, the him was added later. They're really in the original. There is no subject there because maybe they felt like love needed a subject. And I get it because talking about love without a subject can be awkward, right? So it's kind of like this. Like if I go to someone like a friend, like if I go to Steven over here and I've told him I loved him before, right? I go to my buddy Steven and I say, man, love you. I put myself out there. I'm just like, I'm laying myself, I'm making myself vulnerable to Steven. I'm like, Steven, I love you. I've not said it that passionately to him before, but it's more just been kind of like a passing thought. But I'm like, man, I love you. And he responds to me and says, I love. And I'm like, dude, I just put myself out there. Like, I told you I love you. And you're telling me you just love? Like, do you want to elaborate on that? Like, I'm not feeling good about our relationship right now. Like, you want to elaborate, right? The moment is awkward without a subject, right? The moment is awkward without a subject. The subject is important. But John says we love. And the original language doesn't support the use of a subject. It simply says we love because he first loved us. It's kind of confusing in isolation, but when we take it in context, it makes absolute sense. This whole section, chapter 4, all the way to 21, and even into the little bit uh, first part here in 5, and really the letter as a whole, this whole section is about the life and love of God being created and expressed in the life and love of his children. This is what John's been talking about. The entire section, the entire book 
is about the life and love of God, life and love that originates first in God. It starts there with him first. He expresses it, shows it to us, initiates us with it, and how that love is expressed in the life and love of his children, those who trust in him. And John has been talking to us about love for God and love for each other this entire letter. And the immediate context of 1 John and the entire letter allows us to explore both love for God and love for neighbor. It allows us to explore both subjects, love for each other and love for God as the result of God's initiating love in our lives. So with that, let's talk about, let's talk about this. Let's talk about God's initiating love to us as sinners. Let's talk about God's initiating love in our salvation. Let's talk about that. And to do that, I want to introduce you with the story. So this past Father's Day, my entire family went over to my folks' house. And we ended up watching the very first Star Wars. Not episode one, not that garbage. Episode four, A New Hope. Like the original real deal 1977, like first Star Wars. Okay? And that's a proud moment for a dad, right? Like, here's my kids. They're watching Star Wars. Like, I grew up watching Star Wars. Man, I had the Millennium Falcon. I had all the toys. I had the big C-3PO head, like, toy case thing. Right? I had Ewok Village. Like, I own that stuff. Like, I was on it. Like, I love Star Wars. And it's kind of cool. Like, here's my kids. They're watching a movie. Like, I grew up watching. Right? So it's kind of cool. Well, I don't know if you remember this, but there's this bar scene where Han Solo is confronted by a character named Greedo. And I think we have the the picture of the scene. Do we have it here? Yeah. Do you guys remember this right here? That's the bar scene, right? It's when Han Solo first meets Luke. And so Han gets confronted by this character named Greedo. And Greedo works for Jabba the Hutt, right? Who's like a galactic kind of like slumlord, kind of like crime boss kind of a, a guy. And Han Solo owes Jabba some money, right? And so Han's just dodging Jabba. And Greedo is there to either collect the money, bring Han to Jabba, or kill Han. That's what Greedo's there for. And he confronts him in this bar. Last week, saloons. This week, bars. Okay? We like talking about these kinds of places, I guess. So the original 1977 release, the the scene showed one shot fired from Han Solo, the gun of Han, and he kills Greedo. But in 1997, they did a re-release... And they added a shot in from Greedo at Han, which missed, and then Han shot Greedo in return. Well, I don't know if you know much about Star Wars fans, but they are a bunch of technical, angry nerds, okay? And they were upset by this addition. And so they're like, what is this? This is garbage, right? This is, like, Greedo didn't shoot first. Han shot first. And to add to the controversy, George Lucas said, no, 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 no. That was part of the original. But because of lighting and camera angles, it it got left out. So we added it in the 1997 release. It didn't show up. But what kind of started there was a bit of a war between Lucas and all the 30-year-old something Star Wars fans who still live in their parents' basement. And they were very, very upset about this 1997 edition. And so the cry of nerddom was Han shot first. Han shot first. And it is this issue of who shot first that we give attention to in this text. When it comes to God's love for us and salvation and our love for him, who shot first? Who took the first step? And ironically enough, just like the Star Wars bar scene, the question of God's initiating love and salvation has some controversy surrounding it. John is telling us that God is an initiating God. 
His love is an initiating love. He loved us first before we loved him. We love because he first loved us. Now, this isn't the first time that John's talked about God's initiating love. Remember what we saw in 1 John 4.10, John wrote these words. And this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The scriptures are telling us here in 1 John 4.19 and also in 1 John 4.10 that we did not shoot first. We did not shoot first. God did. God shot first. God loved us first. So right now we're going to explore and we're going to examine God's initiating love. And we're going to ask these questions. When did God love us first? Where did God love us first? How did God love us first? And why did God love us first? And church, these are massive, massive life-giving truths for all who hope in Christ. Let's explore these and be encouraged. That's kind of the layout. Okay, first one, when did God love us first? When did God love us first? Answer, in eternity past, he chose to love us. When did God love us first? In eternity past, he chose to love us. Hear Paul's words in Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. He elaborates on what John has already showed us. First John 1, or rather Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us, even as God chose us in him, when before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which we ha- which we, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved So while there is mystery to us, to how God is eternal and how his eternal purposes are accomplished, there is no mystery to God in this. And God has explained it to us in this way, that in eternity past, before he created the world, before he created us, before he created anything, he planned and he purposed the whole redemptive story. God planned and purposed the entire redemptive story. God is not involved in creation and responding and coming up with plan B and reacting, knowing way in eternity past before anything was created. The entire story of redemption, God planned and he purposed it, everything. And part of planning and purposing the whole of redemptive story was the planning and purposing of individual redemptive stories. And it is this thing that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 1. He has planned our individual redemptive stories. God chose to love us back then before the world began. God chose to love us before the foundation of the world, before creation. And verse 5 says that God, get this, verse 5 tells us that God filed our adoptive, our adoption paperwork before the world even began. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In church, if we could grab a hold of this, that God did not decide or choose to love us sometime after we were born, but that in eternity past, in love, he predestined us and chose to love us before the foundation of the world. If we would get that, we would come to see that this is amazing eternal love from God to us. Before we even were, he chose to love us and he chose to adopt us. And as we look at this, this highlights the fact that man's salvation does not begin with man. 
If you're here and if you're in Christ, or if you're here and you're yet to be in Christ and God is just getting after you and calling you to himself, your salvation did not begin with you. It began with God in eternity past. He loved us before we even were. God shot first. Let's say for a moment that this wasn't true. Let's say for a moment that that wasn't true, that somewhere along the way, during the story of man, during your story, your individual story, God decided, okay, I changed my mind. I'm going to love you now. I'm going to love you now. We would easily think, if that were the case, that God found us somehow to be love-worthy. God said, you know what, there's, there's, there's something good here. These, these are amazing folks. They're, they're worthy of my love now. If God decided during our stories to love us, we might begin to think that somehow God found us lovely. Or God found reason in us to love us. But in order to ensure that we never think God's love for us is based on our worth or our performance or anything else that we would ever do, God chose to love us and adopt us. In eternity past. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. Everything, of course, is of God. There would be no such thing as Christianity at all were it not for the love of God. God's love is entirely unmoved by anything in us, by any merit or worthiness in us, or by anything that God has ever seen in us. We must once and forever get rid of the idea that God has loved us by way of a response, either to something that is in us or to something that we have done when we were enemies We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Romans 5.10. And this leads us now to how God loved us. When did God love us? In eternity past. How? How did God love us? How did God love us first? He loved us in our sin and in our rebellion. God loved us in our sin and our rebellion. Now that answer may seem a bit harsh. It may seem a bit harsh and somewhat confusing because at first... It doesn't feel like humanity as a whole is in rebellion against God. You know, a lot of us go through our days, our weeks, our months in rhythms of of home and neighborhood and places of leisure, places of business, in and out of different people that we meet throughout our days, weeks, and months. And from our perspective, it seems that most people are, are good. And most people are good folks who do life in a general positive direction while bad people do the stealing, the cheating, and the murdering. But friends, I need to remind you that God's perspective is far different than ours. God's perspective is way different than ours. We see on the surface, God sees into the heart. He sees, he sees into the very depths, the very core of who we are. And the Bible, these hearts that we're talking about here, the Bible describes these hearts as deceitful and desperately sick in Jeremiah 17. And that's a bleak view of mankind. That's a bleak view of you. That's a bleak view of me and my heart. But this is what the scriptures say. God sees what we can't. And that is that humanity as a whole is set against God. All of us from birth have a natural bent towards resisting God and his ways. And all of us left to ourselves would rather live life on our own terms And live life our own way rather than submit to God and live life on his own terms. We are all in moral and spiritual rebellion against him. Here the apostle Paul paint a bleak picture of our spiritual condition in Romans 3. He says this, as it is written, none is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. That's not very nice, Paul. Right? You can tell Paul didn't come up with the idea, like, let's give every t-ball kid a trophy, okay? Like, he didn't come up with that idea. Because he's not about creating false self-esteem. He wants us to really truly grasp the grace of God in light of our brokenness. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans three ten to 18. The scriptural teaching of man, the anthropology, so to speak, that the Bible puts forward is of man that is in sin. He is dead. He is spiritually dead and he is vile. And there is nothing in him, nothing in man that desires to know God, that wants to know God, that seeks after God. And there is nothing in man that calls forth the love of God or that would endear God's heart toward us to love us. Rather, friends, the great news of the gospel is that God himself has been moved by nothing but his own eternal love. God has been moved by nothing but his own eternal love toward us. So how did he love us? God loved us when we were unlovely. He loved us in the midst and in spite of our spiritual rebellion against him. You know, in most cases, the amount paid for something reflects the value of the thing being purchased, right? Like here's this, you know, baseball card or whatever. And I'm going to shell out 150 bucks for that thing because I see that thing is, is valuable. Or here's this car on the side of the road. And man, I really like that car and I'm going to pay X amount of dollars for that car because there's value in that car. And I want that car. A lot of times the amount paid for something reflects the value of the thing being purchased. And a lot of times what happens is people inject this kind of thinking into the salvation discussion. And they think that Jesus' sacrifice was a reflection of how valuable we were to him. The story of the gospel, however, is of a righteous king who suffered and sacrificed himself for the rebellious subjects of another enemy kingdom. Friends, his sacrifice for us speaks nothing of our value, but speaks everything of his love and everything of his character. Here, Paul from Romans 5, 8, but God shows us his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, when we were unlovely, when we were still Romans 3, 10 to 18, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we can all rejoice in that truth this morning because God has loved us with an eternal love. And it's not been based upon our loveliness or our worth, which leads us to the where. When did God love us? In eternity past. Where? Rather, how did God love us? He loved us in our sin and our rebellion. And this leads us to the where. Where did God love us first? He loved us in his son on the cross. He loved us in his son on the cross. To say what John has already said in this letter, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us first. By sending to us Christ to the cross in our place to be that wrath-absorbing, wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sin. 
This is the death that all of us have deserved. This is the death that all of us have earned because of our sin and our rebellion. And this is God's love statement. You know, John would also come to write this in his gospel. These words, he would pen this in a different letter. The gospel of John. That greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Jesus was our friend, church. He's a friend of sinners. He died for us, sent by the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved us by giving of himself for us. He loved us by giving of his life for us. Love starts with God. And our love is a responding love. God's love is an initiating love. Our love, is, our love reacts to God's love. Our love makes us alive. It awakens us from that deadness and that vileness to respond to God's love. God's love shoots first. It takes the first step. Ours is a responding love and a grateful love for his first love. Listen to what C.J. Mahaney says of the cross. I will crush my son under the full fury of my righteous wrath for you. In the garden of Gethsemane, my son will cry out for this bitter cup to pass from him. And I will remain silent. Why? Because I love you that much. And when my son utters that shriek on the cross, unlike any other protest in all of history, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I will again remain silent. Why? To convince you that I love you. Behold the supreme demonstration of my love, the cross, the death of my son. What more can I say? What else do you require to be convinced of my love for you? A lot of times I talk to people who are wrestling to get the gospel and they've lived a life of sin and rebellion towards God and they see their circumstances and their circumstances are just terrible. And a lot of that has to do with the consequences of their own actions. But some of that is that they've been victims as well as rebels. And they look at their circumstances and say, I can't understand that God would love me. Look at what is going on in my life right now. And I point them to the cross every single time. I say, look at Christ. Look at the cross. Look at God's own shed blood on the cross. How can you dare look at the cross and deny that God loves you? And it's there we see his love. It's there we see. That's where God loved us. And considering the length that Christ went to show us his love, we have to ask why. When, how, where, and why? God, why? Why would you love us in this way? Why did God love us first? Answer, for the glory of his grace and also the confidence, our confidence in his grace. For the glory of his grace and our confidence in his grace. You know, this isn't the question of 1 John four nineteen, but it, but it answers the natural question a sinner asks when they grapple with the love of God. God, why? Why would you do this for me? Why would you love me in this way? Why would you choose to adopt me in eternity past? Why would you so choose to move and act in my life so as to bring me to repentance and faith? Why would you draw me to yourself? Why would you die for me on the cross? And herein lies the wonder and the praise of God's electing and eternal love. The why. The why. The passage that we looked at from Ephesians 1 shows us the why of God's initiating love. And in verse 6 we read this. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. There's your why right there. There's your why. Why? Why predestine us? Why die for us? Why save us? 
Why do this? Paul answers. Put that back up on the screen, please. Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the why. That is the why of the gospel. And to add further emphasis to that phrase, to the praise of his glory, that phrase, to the praise of his glory, appears two more times in the first 11 verses of Ephesians 1. I want to encourage you. If you're, if you're struggling to grasp the love of God, dig into Ephesians 1 this week and highlight the mess out of it. Read it, read it over and over and over. 11 verses all about God's electing sovereign love in our lives. And three times a phrase like this appears to the praise of his glory. That is the why that God loved us. Everything that God does is ultimately to the praise of his glory. Everything. Everything that God does is unto the end that he might be displayed and glorified. You know, there are many reasons why God does various things in our lives and in this world. But there is one reason that is greater than the rest. And his glory is that reason. His glory is that reason. You know, some have argued that we, us, we were the reason. We were the chief, central, sole reason that God sent his son to die. And that I would argue from the scriptures that his love for us was a reason. Absolutely. And that we were a reason, but we were not the ultimate reason. We were not the ultimate why. God's own glory is the ultimate reason that God does all that he does. And his own glory, the display of his grace, the display of his love, so that we might be in awe of it. That is the reason why God did what he did in Christ. In the sending, crushing, and raising of his own son, God is displaying his glorious grace so that we might believe and be in awe of him. Friend, God crushed Christ, raised him from the dead so that you would be floored by his love. That you would be absolutely floored and amazed that he would even do such a thing for you. And that you would believe him and that you would worship him in response to it. This is the why of his initiating love to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, somewhere down the list of the why, that why question is our confidence in his grace. By loving us first, God has ensured that we can't take any credit for our love for God or our love for others. And loving us first, God has ensured, in shooting first, and in initiating us first, God has ensured that we can't take any credit. There's no boasting. There's no arrogance. There's no pride in Christianity. There is no pride in the gospel. God's initiating love leaves no room for it. And that's why pride and arrogance is so repulsive for those who know the gospel. Because we brought nothing to the table and God brought everything to the table. His love was initiating. We love because he first loved us. And this glorious grace should produce a tremendous amount of humility among genuine Christians. And at the same time, at the same time it creates a humility, it also creates a confidence. It creates a confidence in our hearts. And this is what John refers to in verse 17. We already looked at that. A confident approach to God. A confidence on the day of judgment. A confidence approach to God because of his grace. God's initiating love produces confidence in God's grace because we realize that he loved us according to his eternal grace and not according to our performance. Can I get an amen this morning? 
He loved us, not according to our performance. And that is awesome news, okay? To people who have a really hard time performing spiritually and morally, okay? And that's us. He has loved us according to his eternal grace and not according to our performance. God saved us by grace so that we would put our total confidence in his son and not ourselves. He has saved us by his grace so that we would have confidence in him and not ourselves. So that the whole of the Christian life is a relying on, trusting in, clinging to, depending on God for everything. Everything. This is why he's done that. And that clinging to and that trusting in and that, and that embracing that and, and that and that relying on him is also to his glory. Just saying. You can't get around the glory thing. You can't. Why? Because God shot first. God initiated us first. You know what else God's initiating love does? It rids our hearts of fear. And it makes room for us to love the way God loved. And this is the point that John makes in verses 20 and 21. God's initiating love, we saw that. When, how, where, and why. Now we come to see that John is calling us to live out God's initiating love in verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So not only does God's love take something away, namely fear, but it also creates. It doesn't just take something away. It's not just in the negative. It's also in the positive. It creates. God's perfect love causes us to love both God and neighbor instead of fear. It removes fear and puts in its place love. Since God's love has come down to us, I'm going to refer to that downward arrow paradigm that we've been using. Since God's love has come down to us in a downward arrow, We are those who love others, outward arrow, instead of fear. Now, we have labored in 1 John to show you this point. John has labored with repetition and and all sorts. God's love produces a confident attitude towards God, devoid of fear, and also a loving concern for our brothers and sisters. That is the byproduct of God's downward arrow. A concern and a love for the people around me is the byproduct of God's initiating love in our lives. Outward arrows, outward arrows of love that extend to the person sitting next to you, that extend to the person sitting behind you, that extend to the person sitting in front of you, that extend to the one person sitting in the front row. I have no idea why people are freaked out to sit in the front row. It extends to the person who's going to sit in your seat next service. It extends to the person who's sitting in another gospel church in Northwest Indiana who's hearing a message similar to this this morning. It extends to the person who used to go to this church. Yeah, them too. Them too. It extends to Crown Point Campus. It extends to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. It extends to all the brothers, all the sisters, those of us who are in Christ. And John is so absolutely convinced that this is the case. He's so absolutely convinced that God's love in our lives will no doubt definitely produce a love and a care and a concern for those around us across the board that he calls everyone who claims to love God, but yet hates his brother a liar. And John has not minced words in this entire letter. You cannot claim John 
you cannot say of John that he's being wishy-washy or you don't know what he's saying. John has come to us with this language, right? You're a liar. You're not in Christ. You're of, you're of, the, you're of, the, you're of the lie. You're not of the truth. You're a liar. And these are harsh words. And harsh words have their place. And John is pleading with those who say they can love God but not love brother. He's not lying. This person is a liar, John says. And he's not lying about hating his brother, right? Hate is always sincere, isn't it? Hate is always sincere. Bitterness is always sincere. Criticism is always sincere. I'm not aware of a place in the Bible that warns us against insincere hatred or insincere bitterness. But insincere love, now that's another matter. Particularly when someone's making a public statement like, I love God. Right? And this is what these people are doing in 1 John 4. I love God. And I want everyone to know, I love God. You know, we're doing baptisms here in a few weeks, right? At the end of July. Everybody who goes down into that water is going to get baptized as a symbol of God's grace, that God's done something amazing in their life to show that I was dead and I've been made alive and to tell everybody there that watches, I love God. And to the people that say they love God but hate brother, John says, you're a liar. Now, remember the context to which John writes his church, he's a pastor. He's been, his church has been split by people who publicly profess to love God. They were members of the church, yet they felt no remorse for dividing the church at all. And they wreaked havoc on relationships, and they started their own gig down the road. And in context, John describes this as hate. He's talking to a very specific people who left church and wreaked havoc. Listen to what Jackman says about this. Where someone claims to be a Christian but has no time for fellowship with others, criticizing the church and writing it off, practicing a solitary devotion, do we not have, do we not have to ask whether that person is deluded and whether God really does live in him? Where the life of God is at work, it sweetens bitterness, melts hardness, and multiplies love. Where God's love comes in, it sweetens bitterness, melts hardness and multiplies love. And I'm not saying, friends, that we don't wrestle with hate. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we don't wrestle with bitterness. And I'm not saying that we don't wrestle with indifference. Those things are alive and well in us. What I'm saying is the gospel's work in our lives is to break those down and to lead us to repentance and cause us to have a genuine care and concern for those around us. And John here gives a logical reason why this cannot be. It cannot be that you love God, but hate brother. He gets very practical. Look what he says. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So let me ask you, let me ask you, which is easier? Which is, which is harder to love a person or to love God? Which is harder? Which is easier to love a flesh and blood person or to love God? You know, it's easy to love God in theoretical, right? I love God. It's also easy to love people in the theoretical. I love people. Just get up here and just say that. I love God. That's just words out of our mouth. Or to say, man, I love people. Right? It's kind of easy to say that. But which is harder in practice? Which is harder? You know, it's very difficult to love people. Amen? Amen. I should get more amens for that. It is very, very hard to love people. You should try to be my wife for a week. You know, you guys see the best of me, okay? On Sunday morning, I'm preaching. You should try to be my wife. It's hard. 
Why? Because I can be a big jerk sometimes because I'm a huge sinner and I'm very, very selfish. It is very, very hard to love people and to love pastors. I'll add to that. It's very hard to love actual people requires dealing with their annoyingness, right? All the things that just bug you, just annoying things requires bearing with their failures, their sin. It requires sympathizing with their, their circumstances, giving to their needs. It requires us forgiving. It, it, it requires us extending grace. It requires us to serve them. It's hard to live people, but which is harder? Which is harder? John tells us that loving God is harder. The way he, the way he constructs this sentence, John says loving God is harder. Loving people is easier. The scripture here says that if you can't love a flesh and blood brother who's right in front of you, then why would you think that you'd be able to love an invisible God that is above you? If you can't love a brother right in front of you, how can you expect to love God who's invisible and is above you? How? John presents loving brother, loving people as as easier. And yet some will argue this way. You know what? You're absolutely right. Loving people is hard and it's way easier to love God for those exact reasons. He's not annoying he doesn't fail me. He's not needy. He's not emotionally unstable. He doesn't sin against me. I don't have to forgive him. It's way easier to love God than to love a person. So why? Why? Because it's, love, it's easier to love God than to love a person. Why is that the litmus test? Why is that the litmus test for my true saving faith? Why is loving brother the litmus test for my authenticity in Christ? And some will argue that way, saying that it's easier to love God than to love brother. Why is love for others the test? Why? Here's why. That brother, that sister that is difficult and hard to bear with, bears the image of God. They bear the image of God. They represent him and they reflect him. And they were created by God to do so, to represent and to reflect the one who made them. And our love for each other shows that we love the one that they represent and reflect. Here's why loving brothers a litmus test. Because that brother or sister bears the image of God. And they represent and reflect and were made in his image and put on this earth to do so. And our love for each other shows. Our love for brother, sister, person next to you, in front of you, behind you. Shows that you love the one that they represent and reflect. If we say we love God, we will love what he loves and everything that reflects and represents him. Let me give you an example. Let's put it in these terms. John would have some serious beef with me making the claim to love Michael Jordan while watching me vandalize his statue outside of the United Center. Right? I'm like, man, I love MJ. I got my MJ jersey on, and I do. I have his 1984 rookie jersey, Chicago on the cursive on the front. I keep it crisp in the closet whenever I go to the Bulls game, right? I love MJ, but I'm out vandalizing his statue. I'm out vandalizing his image and his likeness. Or even take it a step further. If I was a Bulls season ticket owner and I never wanted anything to do with that statue, and I went to every Bulls home game and I purposely went around the other side not to see that statue. I don't want anything to do with it. Forget that statue. And I said bad things about it, talked about it, and had disdain for that statue. I love my MJ, but that statue, no thanks. You'd be like, dude, you need medication, bro. Like, right? Let's talk about this. You say you love Jordan, but you don't want to go and like take a selfie in front of the statue. Like, right? What's with that? You get it? 
You get it? Calvin said this, it is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God, but neglects his image, which is right before his eyes. It is a false boast for anyone to say that they love God, but you neglect his image, which is right before your eyes. This is what John is saying. John concludes his argument here in this chapter with these words, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And he says this, this is the commandment that we've received from God. And that's the commandment that Jesus gave us. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Someone asked him, love God, love neighbor. He didn't separate the two. He did not separate the two. And that, because that command came from Jesus, and because Jesus joined love of God and love of brother together and didn't separate them, that's why John ardently argues that we can't do the same. We cannot separate a love of God for love of neighbor. God's love for us in Christ changes us through and through, all the way to how we love each other. God's love in Christ gives birth to a new people who love in a similar way that Jesus did. And the gospel now, God's love, God's initiating love in our lives now becomes the lens through which we view all of life and particularly each other in the church. In other words, the way in which we've been loved is now the way we love. The way in which we've been loved is now the way we love. I'm running out of time. I had this chart. I was going to kind of break down an old way that we view people and a new way that we view people in the gospel we're going to skip that, and I'm just going to leave us this in closing. Just kind of a, a benediction of sort that I kind of wrote, just reflecting on the passage. We'll close with this. God's initiating love has been lavished on us. And what a sovereign, graceful, powerful love that it is. Powerful enough to cast out fear and give us birth to awe and love in its place. Let's search our hearts and lives to see where we have been liars not loving our neighbor. Let's repent of such forgetfulness and ingratitude towards God's love. Let's also repent of such indifference toward other brothers and sisters who bear his image and have been loved like we've been loved. Let's go from this place in awe of God's initiating love, ready to love brother and neighbor because he has put a desire to do so in our hearts by his initiating love. God, thank you today for your word. God, thank you today for your gospel. God, thank you today for your initiating love. God, thank you for choosing to love us first. God, we were not wise to even sit around and even know or understand that we needed a savior. To even conjure up, God, the glorious mystery of the gospel. But we're glad to see that it was your purpose in eternity past. Thank you for loving us with an eternal, initiating, sovereign love. Help us to respond. Help us to respond to that with love for you and also love for brother. God, where there's hatred in our hearts, where we've been liars, help us to be quick to repent of that, to turn from that, to seek out reconciliation because reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. May we speak and tell the truth with our lives and our relationships. God, help us to do that by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.